Welcome to The Balance. I'm Catlin Tucker, and today my guest is Dr. Cassandra Corbin Thaddeus. She is a seasoned instructional designer and education technology expert with two decades of experience in education. She has her PhD in instructional design and technology, and she is the founder of Connect to Greatness and currently serves as vice president of coaching and professional services at Learning Innovation Catalyst, also known as Link. I have known Cassandra for years and am thrilled to have her on to talk about her work and specifically her research around high-achieving Black male students. Well, I am so excited to have this conversation with you, Cassandra, and I know about your journey to an extent in education because we have known each other for I think almost a decade now, but I know know, it's been a minute, (laughs) but I would love for you to share your journey in education with the folks listening. Like where did it start and what led to the work you're doing now? Thank you, Um, Catelyn. I am super excited to be here as well and having this conversation. Um, It has been a long time. And so thank you for, for having me. Um, As you mentioned, it's been actually over two decades for me in education and my journey actually started in a very windy, non-traditional, deeply personal way. Mm -hmm. Um, It was inspired, quite frankly, when I became a parent. Oh, yeah? And so, yeah, I was pregnant and said, oh, got to figure this whole thing out, right? Um, And so at that time, um, I was, you know, getting ready to try to figure out what it meant for, you know, childcare for my my kids at that time, I didn't know what I was having, girls or boys, but I ended up um, having two amazing um, African-American Black male boys. Mm-hmm. And um, and so that really sparked me into like thinking about now what the world of education is going to mean and look like and how I need to navigate, navigate that and think about that. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always had a desire and a dream of um, being a classroom teacher, but after... I got, again, became a parent, I knew that as a mother of of Black sons, Mm -hmm. I needed to understand education uh, a lot deeply and and, um, from a different perspective um, with a different intention. Mm -hmm. And so I thought about... you know, thought about that, like I said, pretty deeply and and said that, you know, coaching and training adults is really what I really need to understand because I have to be able to influence the mindset of those in the classrooms with my sons. Mm -hmm. And so um, I began that work in early childhood. Um, So I literally have gone through the educational journey with my kids as they have grown through the system. Wow. Yeah. So started in early childhood. And how, how old are your boys now? 28 and 25. Oh my goodness. That's crazy. It's been 28. That's how I keep track. Otherwise, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know how long it's been. And so why don't you share, what are you, what are you focusing on now? Like, what are you, what are you working on? So um, my work, I love the, the, the kind of the, like I say, kind of the windy journey um, Mm -hmm. because I, I started working with educators doing anti-bias training. Okay. You know, I was doing a, a lot of training with uh, educators. I was doing it with parents. I was doing it with students. And that was really so that the classroom environment and the home environments matched. School culture was also um, something that administrators had, you know, back when I was doing the, the training, wasn't really 
uh, cognizant of or really paying attention to or intentional about thinking about. Mm -hmm. And so um, that kind of led me into continuing to think about, you know, what does the K through 12 system look like? Um, because now my kids were entering into that system. And so um, I really transitioned at that time um, and to start working more with teachers on the ground yep. more directly and supporting them. Um, in some cases, I was working with them to provide supplemental education in Title I schools. Um, in others, it was um, looking at the quality of after school programs. Um, across, um, you know, in school, after school programs, mainly, um, and really look at the quality of that and then really supporting those those providers as well. Wow, that's so fascinating. I love that your journey parallels your son's experience in school. I think that's fascinating. And I remember when we met the first time, we were both working in Puerto Rico and we were kind of supporting the shift to blended learning. And you and I just hit it off like a house on fire. I think we spent like yeah. an <laughs> evening having dinner by the beach talking about blended learning. So I'm curious, where did your interest in this blend of active engaged learning online and offline, like what inspired that? That because obviously you had this whole trajectory you were moving on because of your boys' education. Like what sparked that area of interest for you? I really got excited about working with um, teachers in Florida and Memphis, um, really supporting them with working with supplemental education in Title I schools. And so that was kind of the, the beginning of my love for technology and thinking about blended learning. And so I continued to work um, more deeply with blended learning as a professional development model in, in educator training. And so that meant that educators were able to be more immersed into the blended learning experience so that they can in turn create blended learning experiences for their students in the classroom. Nice. And so that's when it became really, really real and powerful and made me start, you know, thinking about what what's what are the possibilities like this is something that was new to me because I'm thinking about my son's experiences in the classroom. And I'm like, wow, what if mm -hmm. they had um, their teachers knew about the blended learning concept and strategies and had access to technology? Um, at that time, you know, my kids wouldn't have been bored and not felt, you know, they didn't feel challenged and all the things that we we hear and and, and know about um, in, in the cases of some classrooms. And so my kids experienced all of that. Mm -hmm. And so that's why, you know, today I'm, I continue to be a blended learning champion, really supporting educators to continuously be reflective mm -hmm. about their mindset, their pedagogical practices and how they can use all the tools of technology, which is ever changing. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> but at their disposal, you know, to really transform learning and especially for marginalized students. Absolutely. So I know you work with a ton of teachers supporting the shift to blended learning and helping them develop not just a mindset, but also a skill set that's a little more flexible. So we really can honor the diversity that are in our classrooms and provide students with pathways so that those students who are ready for the next challenge, who are accelerating very quickly in terms of their proficiency and mastery are never bored in classrooms. And those right. students who need more scaffolding, need more support. And, you know, we talk about equity in education. I'm always kind of highlighting that really that is this acknowledgement that individual learners need individual inputs to reach a particular output. And when we look at that whole group teacher-led model, 
it just does not cut it, right? You have yeah. the kids who aren't being challenged. You have the kids who aren't getting enough support. So I'm curious when you are talking with teachers about blended learning, because I'm sure you have to do this as much as I do. Yeah. <laughs> how do, what is your like, why? How do you try to articulate the value, the, the purpose of this shift for educators who might be skeptical or feel like, you know, what I'm doing kind of works for me. I'm going to maybe just stick with it. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's... um. I, I love the challenge, right? Because mm-hmm. this is like, I feel like this is what I've been doing for 28 years. Like I wanted to, I want to um, move the mindset of adults in spaces, right? Mm-hmm. I have a, I have a social sociology background. So it's like, oh, nice. I, I love to think about humans and how they, you know, think about the world in different contexts. So, so this was um, so this is a, a a conversation that I love to engage with and, and with teachers and, and educators across the board. And so some of the things that I think about um, there are many, but uh, three that really come to mind, and that is you know supporting educators with understanding the the ability to enhance personalization mm-hmm. for students, um, as you were just you were just speaking about. Um, and it allows them to tailor instruction like they haven't been able to do before, right. you know, and to individualize it for students' needs um, and really kind of continuing to support the fostering of that um, personalized learning so that it can lead to improved student outcomes. Mm-hmm. So if we could just do that, <laughs> <laughs> like I think about the power, like how amazing that would be, because it sounds good in a conversation. Yeah. But if there is um, a way for teachers to, you know, we talk about action research too a lot, right? So teachers to like, let's experiment. Yep. You know, think about some of your most complex students in the classroom and think about how this could support them and try the things with them. Because if it works with them, it yep. will work with all your students. Oh my gosh. Right? I love that. How much do I wish teachers felt they had permission to really treat their classrooms like laboratories, right? Just experiment and like learn from their students and, and have conversations about what worked and what didn't, and then iterate and improve. Like that would make this profession so much more cognitively engaging for teachers if they felt they had that latitude to do that. And inspiring. Yes. And motivating, right? Like, um, and it just, I just think that uh, I, we we give we can give teachers permission to do that in the work mm-hmm. that we do, which I'm really excited about. And I I say we, um, <laughs> and so I'm, I'm working with Learning Innovation Catalyst. So Link is the organization that um, right now I serve as the vice president of coaching and professional services, oh, and wow. so our work is just been. Um, an experiment mm-hmm. <laughs> within itself, you know, as things are coming into the, the space of education, um, we do have the the privilege of working with educators and getting them, um, feel, helping them to feel supported, um, helping to, them to uh, be encouraged as a risk taker and try things. Um, and knowing that we will, you know, be alongside them as kind of a shoulder partner to do that work. So, um, right. it's, it is, uh, the, you know, the, another thing that I think about is the efficiencies that teachers have access to if they, if they mm-hmm. you know, step into this space, um, and utilize some of the digital tools for some of the tasks that, you know, students can now pretty much do themselves mm-hmm. and kind of share, share that, uh, the teaching and the learning experience with students. Yeah, no, I love that. I, I definitely 
think one of the things that I am always trying to message is around like, hey, this is a partnership, right? Not one yeah. person can carry the whole load of learning, nor should they be trying to. And in a lot of classrooms that are still so traditional in nature, it really does feel like the teacher is carrying that heavy cognitive load. And how do we support students in skill building so they can share the responsibility for learning right. with us in all kinds of ways? Yeah. So I want to ask you, so you just congratulations. You are a doctor. You finished your doctoral research. And we had a conversation a few months ago about it that was, I was so fascinated by the work that you did. And so I really wanted you to get to kind of come on and talk about it and share it in more detail. So you focused your doctoral research on high achieving black male students. And I think I know what led to your decision to <laughs> focus on this specific group, but I know there were a couple things that contributed to it. So I'd love to kind of hear a bit about that, what led you to focus on this specific population and this topic, and what questions were you hoping to answer in your research or trying to answer in your research? Yeah, uh, thank you for the question again, because this is like one of my favorite things to talk about. And um, I, I know that you are co very correct in, in assuming what my <laughs> inspiration was, and that was those two sons of mine. Mm -hmm. um, and so my focus on high achieving Black male students was really very intentional, um, Catlin, because rarely do you hear those words strung together. Mm -hmm. High achieving Black male students. Yep. Right. Um, so I chose to focus on um, high achieving Black male students because I wanted to contribute to asset based research mm -hmm. that focused on this specific population. Um, there is not a lot of research out there on um, high achieving black male students. And in fact, the research on high academic achieving black male students um, is largely unexamined mm -hmm. prior to prior to my my study. So there's about um, only like a two percent of the research out there that's focused on asset um, asset based research that's focused on black male students. So um, I, when I started down the path, however, I was um, unfortunately on the, the deficit-based trajectory mm -hmm. and I I realized what was happening. Just, you know, I just, you know, I just started looking at the research and that was all that was there and that's where I was headed. And I had to consciously make the effort to like not contribute to that. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that's what really led me to, you know, being very passionate about finding um, high achieving black male students. And I wanted to know what the educational experience was like for these students mm -hmm. and how they felt about their experiences. And, and, and more importantly, like what was, what were some of the factors that contributed to their success? Oh, so yeah. those were the things that I was really, I was really looking to, to find out. Oh, that's so interesting. So what were like your big takeaways from this study? Um, and then I guess the, the follow-up is like, how can this study obviously help teachers to better support this population of learners? Yeah, um, I learned so much. <laughs> I learned so much about the <laughs> You're like, I don't think we have time for it. <laughs> I, wanna, I can write a book on it. Um, you should. It's kind of like a book, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it was, it was just so much to learn. I mean, I learned about the resilience and the confidence and the supports and all the things. Um but I, I want to answer your question. And so there were really three big takeaways here that um, that really kind of rose to the top of everything at the I took a look at it. So the one thing that each one of these students said that they had at least one teacher, just one, 
who took the time to make a meaningful connection with them. So um, that, you know, translated as, you know, I feel seen, heard and understood um, for who I am. Right. Mm -hmm. And they also talked a lot about um, being seen, heard and understood for who they are not. Um, a lot of times there are stereotypes that are immediately per that, you know, perceive them and they have to work to counter those, mm -hmm. um, which is a lot of work for uh, a student to be to, to have to do and try to be academically sound. Right. So um, some of the things that, you know, they sh shared was that there was, you know, that teacher that they um, deemed as their favorite teacher show that they cared, they could go to that teacher on um, when they were having a bad day, they listened. So these, and, and provided extra support, things like that, that really, really mattered um, to the students. Um, so that was one. The other was um, creating this environment where they felt like they belong. Mm -hmm. Now, I will tell you that if there was no connection, there was no opportunity to, to create a belonging. Right. And so um, in belonging, um, they felt accepted. Right. So there's connection and then they feel accepted. And so this, again, is about being accepted for who, who I am and what I bring into the classroom. Right. And the teacher, you know, speaks to me in a certain way and their attitude. The students mentioned about teachers attitudes and how important that was. Um, and then the, the last thing um, was them feeling um, psychologically safe. Yeah. Right. And and this is where the trust um, actually begins to get created because they can express themselves. So now they're in this space that they feel like they belong. And so now they can actually express themselves, be a part of the conversation, the discussion, feel good about asking questions. They loved to ask questions <laughs> when they felt safe. In yeah. The classroom. Right. Because right? it's a risk to ask a question, it right? It is a risk. Yeah. yeah. Because you don't want to be seen as not knowing. And this is, a, you know, this is one of the things that they said. We didn't wanna, I don't want to be seen like I don't know or um, I should I should be getting it because the other students get it, you know. Um, and so those three things for them was the most important in that order. Wow. In that order, because connection is the entree into belonging. Yep. Which is the bridge to trust. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I'm just curious, super like tangent was did the did the grade level or age in which they encountered this teacher or teachers who really made them feel seen and made that that effort to connect with them? Did that surface at all in your research of like when that happened in their educational career, like earlier versus later? Did it matter? Um, they were actually, so these students were middle and high school. Okay. And so it was happening in real time. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it wasn't a teacher from last year. It was, it was happening. It was teacher this year. Oh, yes. that's so interesting. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. really, that's really interesting. Yeah. So it was, um, it was, it was quite interesting to hear um, how they, they spoke so highly of this one teacher. And I thought to myself, you know, one of the things that teachers don't know probably is how much these students appreciate them. <laughs> mm -hmm. And um, they, they really spoke highly about um, appreciating the teachers. They wish they could tell the teachers, you know, that particular teacher, how much they appreciated them and um, how much they meant to their, you know, their academic success. So keeping that in mind, just because I they think don't about say that, it, <laughs> I think about that doesn't mean they're not thinking it. 
Yeah. I think about that. I think about that all the time. Like, you know, so many teachers, we go, we go through our days and it's like, we're tired. We're not feeling super appreciated by sometimes anybody, right? Especially students. And you just don't appreciate. And I don't think a lot of students, it sounds like some of the students in your study actually did have that awareness and that gratitude already, probably because of their prior experiences, I would imagine definitely making them feel very grateful for this person, like taking the time to see them and welcome them and connect with them. But so often, I don't even know if students recognize the impact. And then it's not till sometimes years later. And I still have students from like the beginning of my teaching career, because they still like say my my main name, who are mm-hmm. like, I'm going into teaching because of you. Um, and or, or hey, when I was in your class, this is what was going on for me. And I can't tell you how helpful X, Y, or Z was. And it's just like, I think if teachers understood just or really were aware of the incredible impact they're having all the time. It would do it would go a long way to kind of filling our cups. And it's just too bad we don't get more of that in the moment, you know? Yeah, that that is so true. Because uh, I, I thought the same thing. I, you know, I wanted to I wanted to ask these students, give me the name of that teacher. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to tell him or her, you know, yeah. that this is going on. So um, I agree with you. I mean, maybe there's some way we can, you know, support our students to have those conversations and drop those nuggets for teachers. So yeah, I agree with you. That's you all great, are amazing. Amazing. Yeah, that's, that's a great <laughs> suggestion. How do we how do we like get students actually giving feedback closer to real time than, you know, yeah. 10, 10 or 12 years later? So based on the big takeaways from your study and the other details that surfaced in your work, what are some of the pieces of advice that you would give to teachers who are working with students that you feel like could help them create the conditions to allow not just this population, but all, but, you know, specifically this population to really thrive? Yeah. So I, I, I I love that. And there are two things um, I want to, three things I want to say, uh, just in terms of uh, supporting teachers to think about this, this population Mm -hmm. specifically, Mm -hmm. and um, it, and it requires some work. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) It requires some work. So it requires uh, teachers to be reflective. Mm -hmm. And um, and, I mean, really reflective and acknowledging um, their biases and stereotypes and mental models that they bring into classrooms about Black male students. The bottom line is we all all have all of that stereotypes and biases about Black male students. If you're watching TV, if you've heard the news, if you Mm -hmm. have a friend, if you're walking around in the world like you have that's that's just what it is right and so acknowledging is one but commit to challenging those biases that's where the work comes in mm-hmm. so it's becoming like very conscious of your subconscious thoughts mm-hmm. and it, it does take some work um, so that's one thing that I would I would um, invite teachers to do the other thing is to redefine their academic expectations of these students um, starting with uh, an asset-based mindset when um, they are engaging with them and, and make the assumption that they're already coming into the classroom as high academic achievers, mm-hmm. that, that they're showing up that way. Because many are, and they end up not, they end up not necessarily um, performing in that way because of what's not present for them in the environment and in the relationship. And then the last thing I want to say about that is that um, if there is uh, no relationship, there's no learning. No. That's it. Yep. (laughs) I could not agree more. (laughs) 
Yeah, that's it. That's it. Um, and so just in terms of specific advice, I think it's, you know, what I just shared in terms of the big three, which is, you know, making meaningful connections, a daily priority, evaluate the rigor and the pace. Students were really in tune to the pace and the rigor of the content mm-hmm. and that it was relevant. This is what prevented them, even in classrooms where they didn't really care for the teacher, mm-hmm. um, this prevented them from disengaging and becoming um, bored because the oh, content, the content was rigorous and it was it challenged them and they felt like it was very relevant. So they stayed engaged. Um, again, they did share about their other teachers that they didn't care about, but the content was good. So that yeah. was important. Well, and that pacing and the the rigor piece yeah. goes back to why we are both such huge advocates for blended learning models, right? Is it's really hard to make sure you're really challenging every student where they're at in their individual learning journeys with a single experience. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, and then, you know, continue to iterate. Yep. You know, that that's just what it is. And um, you, you mentioned earlier, you made a, a comment about, this working for all students and mm-hmm. and especially you know these students and so there is a this concept of t- targeted universalism and mm-hmm. I, I use this in my in my research a lot so it's when marginalized populations face a problem um, it behooves everyone to concentrate on a specific solution for that population which is the reason why I mentioned action research earlier mm-hmm. so because what I've heard is like oh these are solutions that could work with everyone true right. And, <laughs> and <laughs> these, there's, there's a, they, they have to, the specific strategy has to be very intentional to mm-hmm. about working for this population of students. Right. So there's a way that it has to be applied, right. To, to work with this population of students. And so knowing that if we're not intentional, proactive, and goal-oriented around this, um, these issues and using, you know, these strategies for the segment of the population that we're talking about, mm-hmm. then we're, it's going to ultimately impact all of society in a negative way, mm-hmm. right? But if we get it right and we do it and, and it works for marginalized students, um, it's going to benefit the entire general population. Yeah. But I'd like I love that you're really focusing on the intentionality. Like we start by really thinking about what are the problems facing this marginalized group? What are the challenges and how do we specifically address those challenges so that there is this wider benefit, right? I love that. And the action research, I so often feel like education, there's just one challenge, obstacle, problem, whatever that pops up after one another. And I think the more we have that mindset of we're the teacher in the classroom, that makes us the lead learner. So we need to always be learning, learning about our students and what they need, learning about the curriculum and how to better kind of apply it given the needs of the students in our classroom. And I know that that you may feel daunting, but I just think that's where we get inspired. That's where we get to enjoy that that constant lifelong learning journey for ourselves in this profession and hopefully better serve the different groups of learners that we're working with in our classrooms. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I, again, students want to share. Mm-hmm. They, they, you know, they're, they're very much open to sharing how, uh, you know, the feedback and how it felt and what, 
and they can even tell you what maybe you can do this differently. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So if we begin to open up a little bit and um, become kind of like you said, partners with our students, I absolutely believe that there is a um, a way that we can begin to transform learning for especially marginalized students. Yeah. And I think feedback loops are incredibly important. I think too often in education, we focus on giving feedback to students, which is obviously very, very important. But like, where is the feedback loop back to us? Like, how is this working for you? What bumps are you hitting? What what isn't working for you? What could I be doing more of or less of? And I get it. As soon as we open the door to student feedback, it's a little tricky, right? Because we're being vulnerable. They are very honest. And sometimes that can be hard when we feel like we're doing our best, but it really is the best way to learn what are we doing that's actually working in here and what isn't working very well that we're going to need to reimagine or have like a session with our students to do some collaborative reimagining so that this space and the work we're doing in it is as meaningful and effective as it possibly can be. I I would love to see that instituted through like all classrooms. Yeah. <laughs> Start that feedback. That feedback loop would be amazing. Um, and like you said, it, it's a little scary. Yep. But just imagine the growth. I know. I know. I know. I so know. was there anything like surprising or like any interesting moments from your research that you want to share? Because I know, at, at least in my own doctoral research, there were anecdotes or little moments where something would happen where I just like, it was so surprising or interesting. Did you have any of those in your research? So first of all, my research was done during the pandemic. So it's mm-hmm. all virtual. Wow. And so I was in every student's room <laughs> in their in their living rooms, in their <laughs> kitchens, in their bedrooms. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that that was that was pretty interesting, but they were great. Um they showed up um ready, ready to have the conversation. So that was a, a huge surprise because I wasn't really sure mm-hmm. what I was gonna get, right? We're talking about boys and middle school and high school boys mm-hmm. and having a conversation. So they were they were wonderful. Um one of the things that did surface as a surprise to me was that they um they all shared a lack of confidence. Oh, let me oh, back wow. up. They, they sh- so what they desired, each of them, was support and guidance to around their academic journey. Like, mm-hmm. what classes should I be taking? Oh, yeah. You know, what should I be thinking about for college and, and you know, how to really be thinking about that? So what they shared was a lack of confidence in school administrators. Oh, oh not in themselves, being. in school leadership to guide them. That's exactly right. Fascinating. They said they did not feel that the leaders of school, and that included their guidance counselors, wow. that included their principals, like they named all the folks and said that they're not knowledgeable and or they're not interested in mm-hmm. providing me with the necessary guidance that I need. Because I, you know, they had they shared examples about having reached out and then not getting a an email back in time to apply for a scholarship or oh, complete the wow. application. Yeah, so that was really, really surprised to me. It saddened me, and and it was a, a surprise. Um, yeah. So I think there's that, and then the other the other things that um, that came as a surprise. And this is um, I want to put this out there because I think it um, helps to kill stereotypes. And that is um, these students didn't fit the description of coming from single parent homes. Oh, interesting. And, okay. Yeah. And they didn't fit the stereotype or the description of not having a father or, or male figure in their mm-hmm. lives. And so uh, that was a, a, a surprise for me to like see it throughout, you know, when I'm looking at the data mm-hmm. and I thought this is, this is fabulous. 
So those were the couple of things that actually came up for me in terms of surprise. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that first surprise for you. I'm, it reminds me of, so I spent 16 years teaching in a public high school that served about 1800 kids. And for gosh, the last probably five years that I taught there, I think we had the highest student to counselor ratio in the county. So it was something wild, like 630 kids to each counselor. And I have to imagine that in public schools in particular, where you don't have as many of those support staff as you truly need, that so many of these students who do have an eye on college or scholarships just are not getting the support that they need because there's just so many students and not even enough adults in those positions to really guide them. Because I had a really interesting situation where my daughter ended up transitioning from a K-8 public school into a private school for high school. And she has like a dedicated college counselor. And it's like a totally different experience than what my public high school students got when Mm -hmm. I was teaching. And I can just imagine how many of them, you know, I think of the population at the school where I taught where a huge number of families who English isn't their first language or they don't speak English in the home. And it's like, how are they getting the support that they need to help guide their kids in the very tricky labyrinth that is applying for, preparing, taking all the tests necessary, getting all the classes necessary, even to qualify to apply to a college, you know? Yeah. And that that's, you know, and that was one of the things that I found to be really quite amazing to hear from these students of how they still were so very much determined Mm -hmm. to make sure that they, you know, got the information that they needed. They were doing their own research, right? Asking their own questions and, um, you know, fortunately had support in the community and of their family. And in many cases, their family, you know, folks hadn't been to college and don't know the process and things like that. So, um, you know, they, they were, they were focused, they were focused for sure, and they were going to get it done. And so I've been, I continue to have the conversation and use that one, um, aha with administrators, mm-hmm. um, to continue to, to bring that up and, and how are we supporting our students so that they do feel prepared and ready to, you know, move into the next phase of their college or career. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. Okay. So I I feel like we could talk about this all day long. Um, this is not yes. our first conversation on this topic, but it's fascinating. Um, but I always end the episodes by inviting my guests to share any tips or strategies they use in their own lives to kind of strive for balance. And that could be balance professionally, work-life balance, personal life kind of balance. So are there any strategies, tips, routines, things that you do that have been helpful in kind of achieving a healthier balance in work, life, work, life, kind of that whole kind of equation? Yeah. Um, so when I think work life, I say to myself, well, there is no work and there's going to be no life if I don't take care of my health. Right. Oh, that's true. For sure. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> so that's the first thing, you know, I have to put my health first. So that means I need, I, need, I rest when I need to rest. And that can be hard for um, a lot of us who are just driven by the work that we do. And so resting when I need to rest, that's that's one of the things. Um, The other thing is I'm starting to realize that I get really excited when I know that there's something coming up like a Mm -hmm. trip (laughs) or something for me to do. And so I've decided to um, I started to plan monthly. 
mm-hmm. events with my husband or with a couple friend of ours. And so every month there's something coming up that we can look forward to. So uh-huh. that that helps to, you know, just just again, just have keep me focused on what else is uh, available to me in, in terms of gratitude and and mm-hmm. family and friends and and just, you know, again, about that balance in, in life and just having some fun. You know, I love that. when I can. Yeah. And I think the only other thing is um, uh, I limit my times on, on Sunday mm-hmm. to um, activities. It just activities that support me emotionally and spiritually. That's it. I don't I do anything that. else. I don't do anything else on Sunday. I love that. I don't don't think I've ever had anybody mention just like straight up rest. Like it's time for my body and my mind to rest. And or even the like, which I totally agree with you. I love having a trip on the horizon. It doesn't have to be this month. It could be three months away. But if I know it's coming up, I love thinking about it and planning it. And if I'm having a long, exhausting work week. I'm like, it's worth it because I'm going to get to do this thing. So I love that advice. And I really appreciate you coming on and chatting with me and sharing your research. It's such an important topic. So thank you. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me, Callan. This was amazing. It's so good to be back with you. I appreciate this conversation so much with Cassandra and love her kind of talking through her research. And I think what really stands out to me from our conversation is this idea of being really intentional as educators, focusing on our groups of students who have been classically marginalized and really thinking about what obstacles, what challenges are currently maybe preventing them from being as successful as they could? And how do we proactively try to remove those barriers and and create spaces where they feel seen and valued and they have opportunities to do work that is meaningful for them? I also love Cassandra's statement about relationships. And without them, meaningful learning is almost impossible to achieve. So how are we showing up every single day to connect with our students and to help them feel seen and supported in our classrooms. Obviously, that's incredibly critical work if we're going to create spaces where they feel psychologically safe to take risks and lean into the learning. I want to thank you all for joining me for this episode. And if you have any questions or comments, you can find me on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Catlin underscore Tucker or Instagram at Catlin Tucker or my website, CatlinTucker.com. I will put links in the show notes so you can connect with Dr. Corbin Thaddeus about her research and any part of our conversation you want to hear more about. 